Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Building Efficiency Podcast presented by Nenny & Associates. I'm your host, Jim Schaefer. Now, if this is your first time tuning in, Nenny & Associates is an executive search firm focused on the building efficiency industry, hence why we named the podcast the way that we did. And simply put, we help our clients find the right talent. Each week, we sit down with leaders from the industry to discuss their backgrounds, how they got started, and where they see the industry heading. We also get to know our guests and find out what drives them to be successful. And on today's episode, episode 38 with Brad Doxer, he's the founder and CEO of Green Generation. Really enjoyed our discussion hearing about Brad's entrepreneurial journey and really the genesis behind starting Green Generation over 10 years ago now. He provides some powerful insights into the energy services industry, not only on a global scale, but what this means for us here in the United States. And you'll, of course, want to stick around until the end to hear what he wants his lasting legacy to be. I really like that answer. Now, if you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe to our channel and consider downloading this episode and future episodes. This is really the only way that we can track how many people are listening. So if you're one of those people who are streaming the episodes, I would urge you to consider hitting that download button instead. And if you're enjoying this episode or other episodes within our podcast, please share it and leave a five-star review. Now, we think you're really going to enjoy this conversation between Brad and I. So let's drop in. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Building Efficiency Podcast. Today we're sitting down with Brad Doxer, who is the founder and CEO of Green Generation. Brad, welcome to the show. Jim, great to be here and good morning. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for thanks for taking the time. And what we wanted to do is uh, get into how you started Green Gen and, and where the industry's at right now. But before we do that, I was hoping our audience could get a little bit of background on you, maybe where you grew up and then how you got started in the industry. Maybe start there. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up here in Washington, D.C., which is where I'm um, speaking to you from, and really came to this in a, a circuitous manner. Spent the first 20 years of my professional life in real estate private equity. So I came out of um, Harvard College and started at JMB Realty, which at the time was the largest real estate firm in North America, and then went back to Harvard for graduate school, uh, and then spent a decade as the founding partner at Starwood Capital for their international business. So I founded Starwood's uh, business both in Asia and then in Europe. Um, and really, you know, this is really a second career of sort of thinking about energy and technology, uh, renewables and ESG. Uh, and it's not one that I would have expected to be in, you know, when I was uh, going to school for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. So a uh, little bit of background there. I think that's that's good. So so maybe if you could walk us into to Green Gen, you know, what was the genesis of why you started the company? And, and I'm curious, and I think our audience is going to be curious to just get some insight into the uh, the entrepreneurial journey there. It's actually a great question, because as I said, I really you know came out of real estate private equity. I didn't aspire to start a business like this, nor um, to be an entrepreneur necessarily. But really came to this because real estate and private equity historically were very simple. They basically were focused on revenue and top line. So any investment memo, any underwriting of a building or a company prior to 2008 was all about the top line. And we just assumed that the bottom line kind of naturally happened. In 2008, top lines collapsed, revenue, sales, markets. And all of a sudden now we saw this collapsing cash flow. And as we began to think about ways to mitigate that, we began to look at expenses. Um, and the biggest expense that we knew nothing about turned out to be energy, electric, water, gas, and steam. 
And much to our surprise, it was bigger than we ever realized. But it was also much more controllable than people had historically said. Um, and the final piece was technology become much more powerful. And there was an ROI-driven opportunity around integrating technology in the built environment. You could just figure it out. And so all I was looking to do at that point was to simply hire someone to do it for us. And while we found literally hundreds of firms to talk to, they largely broke out into sort of two types of firms. On the one hand, you had a lot of consultants who wanted to get paid to tell you what to do, but didn't want to implement or execute. Um, a very sort of Washington business model, if you will. You know, pay us to help us give you a strategy, but we're not going to actually implement it. And then the other part were people with a product. Buy my software, my light, my motor, buy my thing, and you'll save money. Um, but it ultimately felt like that wasn't what we wanted. And we really wanted more of a solutions-based approach rather than a product-driven one. We wanted it to be very quantitative because we were actually quite surprised by the number of people who kept telling us, you know, buy my thing, the payback is good. And we were often saying, listen, we don't know where to put the word good in our spreadsheet. You know, we're very, we're quantitative. We think about spend X, get Y, it drives the value of the business. And that wasn't really what people were talking about. And the final piece was, we really felt it was critical to integrate execution into this process, to overcome all the inertia that we encountered as you move from a good idea to a good project. And so armed with that, we started asking friends at other real estate firms and private equity firms, you know, who owns this category of spend? Who do you turn to as your trusted advisor? And most everybody had the same response was, which was, we don't have anybody. We didn't realize this was something we should be focused on. What are we missing? And so with that as background, my wife and I, who had met at JMB out of college, uh, founded Green Generation in 2011. Um, at the time, the focus was really on driving a financial outcome more than driving an ESG or sustainability. We understood that what motivated investors, you know, the real estate community, the private equity community, was the ability to articulate a financial outcome. You invest X, it will reduce your costs, it will increase your cash flow uh, with a cap rate or a PE multiple, it creates this much enterprise value. And if you do that and you can articulate the co-benefit of improved ESG or sustainability resiliency, however you want to think about it, then you'd be way ahead of the game. And so um, we began, you know, in 2011, working primarily with investors, the groups that we were already familiar with, um, to do this type of work. Is 10 years gone by pretty quick? It's hard. It's kind of hard to believe. 10, 2011 was 10 years ago. Wow. It's it's a funny question because you know right now with the, the the big focus on ESG and climate and the change of administration you know and we're sitting here today recording um, just now just under a week of the Biden administration everyone thinks that we're the smartest people in the world and we're very prescient um, but over the course of that ten years there are times we felt smart there are times we felt lonely um, and people didn't really care about what we're doing but we now find ourselves really in a very enviable position um, with not only a lot of energy background, but also real estate capital markets and technology background and the ability to articulate a very clear financial business case to ESG. And in a sense, what we're now telling people is that we make climate profitable. Very interesting. Yeah. And, and what changes have you seen just over that 10 year period of time? You talked about the evolution of the business and sustainability and, and ROI and making 
a compelling value proposition to customers that you're working with. But is, is there anything that you're hearing when you're listening to your customers today that maybe sounds a little bit different than it did five or 10 years ago as far as what they're looking for? Absolutely. I think one of the challenges that sustainability or ESG had in its early days is that it was sold incorrectly. People basically were told, invest X and you can be more sustainable. You know, invest Y and you can reduce your greenhouse gases or carbon. And without a price on carbon in the United States, essentially there was no business case for that. Mm-hmm. We, in many cases, simply changed the paradigm, changed the, the articulation of the business proposition and basically said, invest X, you're going to reduce your operating costs, you know, whether it's electric, water, gas, and steam, or insurance, repairs, and maintenance. You're going to reduce your costs. You're going to increase your cash flow. You're going to drive the value of your asset, which generates additional fees or uh, profit participation and promote. Uh, and you're going to have a co-benefit of improved ESG or sustainability. And when you articulate it that way, the interest was you know, very strong. Um, so I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that investors in capital markets care much more today than they did 10 years ago. If you are a private equity firm or a real estate investment firm, your ability to raise capital today is, um, is contingent in a large measure on your focus and your ESG approach. You know, the big pension funds, the big sovereign wealth funds are saying to the investors today, you're not going to get our money. Um, if you don't do certain things, if you don't incorporate ESG, if you don't integrate it into your business, you're not getting our capital. And that doesn't matter if you're a small fund or the world's biggest fund. The answer is the same. Um, and so you have to have it. I think the other thing that's happening is that investors simply have recognized that this now drives the value of their assets. It drives the direct economic value to their business by improving asset values, fees, and profit. And you use the acronym ESG a couple of different times there just for our audience and make sure everyone's on the same page because there are a lot of acronyms in the industry. What are you referring to with ESG? ESG is typically environmental, social, and and governance. Um, And it's an interesting acronym because the E is the, the thing that drives the economics the most. It's about reducing you know, electricity, water, gas, steam, um, it has a direct bearing on the income statement of the building and the value. The social and the governance are a little trickier because while they have very clear returns, they're a little bit softer, a little more indirect. Mm. Um, Governance, for instance, talks about the types of rules that you have in your contracts with your vendors. It talks about your board representation. And ultimately, we firmly believe that a focus on governance will lead to better decision-making, um, but it's not as direct as the reducing the E. Um, and so it's really combining the three uh, into a comprehensive solution, which we think drives the best outcomes for companies. Okay. Okay. So you, you mentioned it previously with the Biden administration coming into play. Now, that may be a good launching point for us to, I guess, do your best to project into the future. I mean, where, where do you see the industry heading, especially within the context of maybe the, the new administration coming into play here? Well, let me take one step back and sort of talk about sort of government overall, because I think sure. what you're really seeing with the, you know, the change of administration in the United States is simply the U.S. now trying to catch up to what other countries are doing. First and foremost, 
um, you know, coming out of the COP21 in Paris meeting, um, the vast majority of countries around the world recognized very explicitly that there was a climate crisis. And they all began to create commitments to addressing that. Um, fast forward to the last six months, and you now have voluntary commitments um, of countries to be uh, essentially net zero carbon by 2050. Canada, UK, France, Germany, Korea, Japan, all by 2050, China by 2060. What that means is that, you know, while all the regulations aren't perfectly clear yet, it's very clear the direction we're going. Um, and owners of businesses and real estate recognize that, you know, whether or not it's 2040, 2050, 2060, the direction is very clear at this point. Um, and it will be, you know, create winners and losers. Um, now, if you go one level down to the subnational level, um, states and particularly cities around the world have been the leaders in this. Um, you know, the BEPS law in Washington, D.C., local law 97 in New York, with very strict and onerous requirements to reduce um, energy emissions at the building level. Um, all that's coming. It's certainly been recognized by, you know, leading investors. Um, and then the other level, is private companies. Thousands of multinational companies are signing on to things like the Amazon Climate Pledge uh, and all making voluntary commitments to be net zero to uh, reduce greenhouse gases in their supply chain. Um, and that really means that everybody is moving in the same direction. The good news now is instead of having an, uh, an administration that is dragging its feet or working against the rest of the world, uh, the U.S. is now going in line with the rest of the world and looking to accelerate and catalyze. Um, but let's be clear, you know, this is not as if the entire U.S. government was working against it. Lots of agencies, lots of um, different decision makers were already doing this, even in the last four years. This is now just about the executive branch and specifically the White House coming in line. And I think you saw that with the first two executive orders that were signed on Inauguration Day, talking about both a return to um, the climate accord, the Paris Agreement requirements, uh, as well as reinstating the analysis and essentially the idea of a social cost of carbon, thinking about you know, the myriad of different ways that carbon and greenhouse gases impact people, not just the direct economics, but health, asthma, um, educational attainment, uh, things like that. In what role do you see green generation playing in this new big picture of this broad spectrum that you were laying out there on a global scale, or even just uh, here in the United States, where do you see Green Gen fitting into all this? Yeah, well, it's an exciting time for us, Jim. You know, we operate globally. You know, I'm sitting in Washington, D.C., but we also have offices in London, Tokyo, and Shanghai, uh, and are probably working today in 15 different countries around the world, you know, literally, you know, at this moment in time. And it's exciting because everybody's seeking the same thing now. Everybody's looking to figure out how to have a positive climate impact, but they're also, you know, loving the idea that we articulate a, a double bottom line way to do it. And I said earlier, we make climate profitable. We help people understand how they can drive the value of their organization or their business or their assets, but also do it in a way that is very positive for the environment for climate. Um, if you reduce your energy um, consumption by say 30%, explicitly, implicitly, you must uh, be having a climate impact. 
you can't, you know, you can't be negative um, to climate or greenhouse gases if you're doing that. And so, you know, you think a lot about, you know, the different stakeholders. You know, I think we're particularly good at understanding and thinking about who they are. In the traditional sense, you own an office building, you think of your tenant um, and your major, your major counterparty is simply the person who signed the lease. You know, we think it's a more expansive view would be to include the employees, the guests of the building, the neighbors. So if you need a permit or, um, you know, from the city to expand or do something, you know, understanding what their priorities are means you could either get it quickly or they could drag your feet and the neighbors could be really working with you for a long period of time to work against your interests. That's not a good place to be. And every business is in somebody else's supply chain either selling to individuals who care about the brand that they're buying and who they align with, or you're selling on a C2C basis or B2B basis to um, another company who cares about their supply chain of their product. Um, so it, it's really exciting to sort of see what's going on. Um, you know, we run a team of engineers globally around the world. Uh, we have project managers and analysts around the world. Um, and increasingly, you know, companies are turning to us because they're trying to figure out how to articulate um, this double bottom line. You know, we don't think there's a lack of ideas. We think every company, every city around the world, every government has lots of ideas. The challenge is capital markets don't finance ideas. They finance projects. Most, you know, businesses and facilities have ideas. And so the gap, if you will, the missing piece is the project developer that can turn an idea into a financeable project with costs, rebates, incentives, incorporated the timing uh, and the site-specific conditions that are really critical to actually executing these projects. Well, I certainly agree with you. It is an exciting time and you know, I'm, I'm optimistic and looking forward to see what the, uh, the future holds here for the industry. And I appreciate you, you walking us through that in great detail. I think that was, that's gonna be super helpful for our audience. So I wanted to do here, Brad, was transition to the last part of the show and, and uh, ask you the same four questions that I asked every guest who comes on. I wanted to start off here and ask you, what are your daily non-negotiables? Really simple. Wake up, exercise, same breakfast every day. Um, yogurt, granola, bee pollen, and berries. Those are my non-negotiables. Every, you know, everything after that, um, each day changes. Every day starts exactly the same. Well, this isn't a health show, but I'm, I'm curious, why the bee pollen? I haven't heard that one yet. You know, I, I was told long ago that bee pollen is really good for allergies and just general overall health. The key to bee pollen is that the bee, the bee pollen needs to be from the area that you live because mm. basically the bees then are going, creating the pollen from the flowers in your area. So if there's any sort of asthma, I don't have asthma, but any sort of, you know, just issues with allergies and things like that, local bee pollen is is the key to that interesting very interesting so i I buy the bee pollen from a small co-op right down the street from my house oh that's that's cool that's very cool so let's rewind the clock uh you're graduating from undergrad uh you're 22 years old what advice would you give to your 22 year old self i think it's very simple focus on working with really good smart um people who have a really clear um ethical and moral sense. And I don't say that because I didn't. I think I was very fortunate to work with really smart, ethical people at the beginning of my career, and it set me on a great path. Just double down on that advice, huh? 
That's great. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? I love that we've created a business that both can drive a financial outcome, but also um, an environmental outcome. So something that's not only important to our clients, but also is really important to the communities in which we're working. Um, and I, I don't think there's anything better than that. Last question here. What do you want your lasting legacy to be? Oh, that's really simple. Um, I created three incredible humans um, my, with my wife. You know, we've got three kids who are moral, they're ethical, they're smart, they're all making a difference. Um, and, you know, to me, that is my singular lasting legacy that I've created really high quality humans. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's something uh, we can all aspire to for sure. So Brad, I think that's a perfect way to wrap up the show here. Thanks for coming on the Building Efficiency Podcast. Jim, thank you very much. It was great to be with you today and um, have a good rest of the day and week. All right. Thanks, Brad. All right. There you have it. Episode 38 with Brad Doxer. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And if you did enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you enjoy listening to your favorite podcast. Now, we hope you're sharing this with your friends and colleagues as well. And the one last thing that I would ask here, if you have any future guests in mind from the industry that would be interested in coming on the show, please reach out to me. We'd love to hear from you loyal listeners. So until next time, I'm Jim Schaefer, and we'll catch you on the next episode.